good morning again. So glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors at FBC and just glad that you're with us for this time of worship as we get ready to jump into God's Word. You can join me in the book of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 is where we're going to be today. Again at FBC we uh, believe in the authority of Scripture and we just want to preach uh, through the Bible. We believe that God will speak to us through His Word. And so we're in this uh, sermon series we're calling Onward uh, for a couple weeks now. We just started this letter of Second Timothy where we're looking at uh, this call to follow Jesus into really the next uh, uh, chapter of, of life and ministry and what is ahead. This book points us forward to, to what's coming and says, hey, let's continue to follow Jesus together. So, so many uh, powerful and helpful truths uh, in this book that was written in the first century, but is still so applicable today. Uh, Pastor Lee did a great job uh, taking us through uh, the section last week and was so encouraged by his message, and I'm just glad to be back with you uh, this morning. So would you pray with me as we get ready to jump in? Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the gift of your word, that you've made yourself known to us, that we can uh, read scripture and see who you are and what you uh, call us to. So we pray that you would guide us and teach us and shape us by your word. Would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, uh, just open up our hearts and eyes to, to see you clearly. Uh, we give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to take you back briefly to 1961 in the summertime, July specifically, to the first day of training camp for the Green Bay Packers. They had just lost in the championship game the previous season, and they were reporting for training camp, ready to take on the challenge of a new season. And it was there that legendary coach, Vince Lombardi, uh, gathered these players, these professional football players, players ready to learn how to go to the next level and be experts in their craft. And Coach Lombardi begins famously with this simple statement, before all these men, he holds up a football and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And with this simple gesture, he shows them that they are going to go back to the basics. And as a team, they were to become masters of the fundamentals and excel in areas that everyone else took for granted. And they would excel. The Packers would go on to win the championship that year and five championships in a stretch of seven years. Coach Lombardi is one of the most famous in NFL history. And ever since uh, that season, 1961, and that speech he gave at the start of training camp has been a shining example of the power of the fundamentals. The basics, not overlooking the simple fact of this is a football, and here's why that matters. we got to start on page one of the playbook. You know, the same is true in the Christian life. Sometimes we take the basics for granted. We take the basics or the fundamentals of the gospel message for granted, and we want to 
move on or graduate to more interesting doctrine or more mysterious conversations about faith or debate the finer points of theology when what we really need, every one of us needs a firm grasp on the basic truths of the gospel. Paul, in the letter of 2 Timothy, is going to remind Timothy of something similar as Paul is writing from prison, nearing his death, he writes to his young uh, pastor friend Timothy, who is a pastor in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Uh, we saw that he began with a greeting, reminds Timothy of their friendship and bond. Uh, we saw some initial exhortations and commands that he gave to Timothy last week from Pastor Lee. And now uh, we see how he continues his letter with an emphasis on the core basics of the faith. Look at how he starts in, or continues in verse 13. He says, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Notice here that Paul in the text is, is referencing a, a core group of beliefs or doctrines. In verse 13, he speaks of what? This pattern of sound teaching. And in verse 14, he speaks of a, a good deposit, something that was entrusted to Timothy. Now, the word there in verse 14 for deposit was, was typically used in, in financial context to speak of, of money, money that was given or entrusted to someone to be held or invested or guarded or protected in some way. But Paul's point here isn't that Timothy has been given money. Instead, no, he's been given a message. He's been entrusted with the truths of the gospel. See, Paul and the apostles, these early followers of Jesus, knew that there were these core beliefs, these core convictions or components that made up a Christian worldview that, that had to be preserved and taught and passed on to the next generation. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Timothy, you need to keep this pattern of sound teaching. You need to guard this good deposit, these core beliefs of the faith. Now, Maybe uh, the first thing that stands out to you about this as we read this in the text today is, is simply that there are core truths of the Christian faith, core doctrines that are to be held to, basic orthodoxy that is to be guarded. Maybe that sounds a bit rigid or sounds a bit backwards in our society because central to the Western mindset is what? progress, the idea of being progressive and changing and evolving. Right, actually, I was listening to a, a podcast this week by Dax Shepard. He's a, an actor. Many of you likely have seen his work or know him. He's a, he's a professing atheist, and there on the podcast, he's interviewing this uh, pastor, and he, he basically asks them, hey, why don't you just change the stuff in the Bible that you don't like? Right? Why don't you just Update it. Make like a Bible 2.0. Modernize it a little bit. Take out the stuff that's, that's strange or, or outdated. I mean, we have amendments to the Constitution, right? 
Let's just make some amendments to the Bible, get rid of the stuff that's out of date or out of touch with modern sensibilities. Like, why don't you guys just get together and, and do that? That's what people do. We, we evolve. And, and maybe you're with us this morning and you're kind of sympathetic to that approach and say, yeah, there's some stuff about the Bible I don't like either. Can we uh, update it or change it? But notice that's, that's not how, how Paul or the apostles or the leaders in the early church uh, thought about things. That's not what the, Paul is saying to Timothy. Instead, he says what? Timothy, I want you to stick to the pattern of sound teaching that you have been shown. In fact, there are going to be all kinds of temptations to stray from this gospel message. I want you to guard it. I want you to keep it. It's been entrusted to you to be preserved and passed on. I don't want you to waver from these core issues. Again, not every hill is a hill to die on, but there are certainly some hills that are worth it. Because Paul and the apostles, and we believe today that these words that we find in in Scripture are not just words from men. We don't have the authority to tamper with it, to change it because we believe that these letters, these words are ultimately from God. It's revelation. It's what God wanted to make known in the world about himself and about the world, these truths about him. So we don't have the freedom uh, to simply mess with it or change it, even if maybe sometimes we would want to. And so for Paul, he's saying this gospel message is to be guarded fiercely. Look at verse 11, a few verses earlier. He says, of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. So I was a messenger, a herald, a teacher of the gospel. That's the good deposit we're talking about, the gospel message, this good news about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, the love and grace of God demonstrated in those things. This message of salvation for the world that you've heard from me, Timothy. You've been entrusted with it, and I want you to carry that torch. Now, we're going to get into some specifics, some core components of the gospel message that we have to understand. But before we get there, you notice there are a couple qualifiers in the text. There are a couple uh, additions that Paul makes as he's saying this. He, he commands Timothy to keep the pattern of sound teaching, to guard this message, uh, and then he qualifies it. Look, verse 13, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So, two qualifiers in the text. The first is in verse 13. I want you to keep the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So here is no rigid, cold orthodoxy without love. So saying it's not enough that you hold to these biblical truths, that you keep the faith. It matters how you hold these biblical truths with faith and love in Christ not with, with bitterness, with pride, with boasting, with condescension. And friends, I, I, I've been kind of the rigid 
rude doctrine guy before, where I knew plenty of things about the Bible, but I lacked love for people. I lacked a humility that comes from knowing Jesus. And so what Paul's saying here is, hey, we're not simply talking about content transfer. Yes, the message matters, but also how you deliver the message, how you carry yourself matters with faith and love for people. That comes from being connected to Jesus. And maybe you've experienced people in the church or Christians elsewhere that are like this, where you're like, you know, you, you might be right about some stuff, but no one really wants to be around you. That's not what Paul is calling us to. Bible knowledge alone does not equal Christian maturity. So yes, the message matters, but also how we carry ourselves and share that message matters with faith and love in Christ. Second qualifier comes in verse 14. He says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so this task is not to be undertaken simply in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own energy. It doesn't simply rely on you. Yes, you have a role to play, but also you are going to be helped by the Holy Spirit. This gift of God's presence that indwells every believer, the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit is to be relied upon. So, with those two qualifiers, we're now ready to kind of jump into, uh, for the next two weeks, a study of this uh, core foundational group of teachings that would be at the heart of the Christian message, this sound teaching, this good deposit that Paul is referencing, an orthodox Christian worldview. Like Timothy, we have the same charge today. Keep this sound teaching. Guard it, because many today do not embrace the truths of the gospel. Or there's some biblical teachings that get uh, believed in part or blended with other worldviews <clears throat> that are inconsistent. Or maybe you're here and you've simply never been, been taught the basics we have some ideas of what the Bible has to say, but never like a comprehensive approach to a Christian worldview. And so it's my hope in the next uh, two weeks, this morning and next week, we're going to come back to the same idea, to kind of lay a foundation and a framework for a Christian worldview. Some of this will be repeat information, uh, but this will be new for some of you, but all of us could really benefit from, again, like Coach Lombardi, going back to the basics. So there are a number of ways we could approach this, whether we could walk through a doctrinal statement, we could walk through the Apostles' Creed, we could uh, do like a systematic theology textbook approach, but, but instead what I think we're going to do, our approach here is going to look at the story of Scripture, the big picture arc of the gospel, and see that it contains four main movements, uh, four chapters, if you will, that, that kind of help us make sense of the story. And those four, maybe you've heard this put together this way before, are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Again, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, in the text of Second Timothy here, Paul doesn't use those exact words 
words, but I think that this framework gives us a good way to, to understand Paul's message, that if we miss or don't have or don't understand any one of these components of the story, it'll be difficult for us to really make sense of, of what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy and uh, elsewhere as he writes about the good news of Jesus. So we're going to walk through these four components here for the next uh, two weeks. And so let's start this morning uh, with the first one, the doctrine of creation, kind of where it all began. Uh, as Christians, we believe that the God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the world and the universe into existence by his power and by his will. God created everything out of nothing. And so it wasn't as if there was just a bunch of stuff out there and God said, I'm going to kind of fashion and shape this, this pre-existing materials into something different. No, God brought everything into existence. There was nothing that existed apart from God making it exist. We see the first page of the Bible, the first sentence of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says simply, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, with that, right away in the story, we see a distinction, right, between the creator God and everything else. There's one creator God, not just one among many, one creator God, and then everything else. God is distinct. God is fundamentally different from his creation. And, and I brought, you know, a high-tech visual aid that I possibly have used before to help us and show us uh, what this looks like. Again, there is God, and then there is not God. <clears throat> okay, so there's God, and then not God. God, and then everything else. And that distinction is really important and really foundational to a Christian worldview that protects us from error, errors like uh, pantheism that would say, well, everything is God or God is everything and you are divine, you are a God and I am a God and that tree over there is God and so on. Christians would say, actually, no. God is distinct from his creation. He's uncreated. He's always existed. And God is distinct from his creation. That's a very foundational line to, to hold to. And God did not create out of insufficiency as if he was lonely and just uh, needed anything. He created simply because he, he wanted to. He chose to. Now, all that God created was good, Genesis chapter 1 tells us. The universe above and the mountains, the oceans, towering trees and creeping bugs. There's, there's nothing in the created world that was inherently evil or inherently opposed to God. Sometimes we view the material world as unnecessary or unimportant or kind of icky and, and dirty, but the doctrine of creation tells us that God made everything for a reason, and he called it good, inherently good. And its, it's beauty points us to him. Now, we know that the story uh, will 
come about the fall, and not everything stayed that way, but at least now inherently God created everything and called it good. Now, the summit of God's creative work was the creation of human beings. Okay, we, men and women, were made to be in relationship with God. The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God. So male and female, men and women, were created in the image of God. Now, that means a couple of different things. One, in the text of Genesis chapter 1, being made in the image of God is directly linked to our responsibility, functionally, to have dominion over the created world. So we as human beings are called to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to see all living things flourish under our care. The image of God also may reference kind of the unique capacities that human beings have, our capacities for uh, of intellect, of uh, reasoning, of self-awareness, our relational capacities that, that make us personal beings that are different, noticeably different from the rest of creation, from dogs and ducks and trees and squirrels and mountains and rocks and the rest. And so I brought, and again, another high-tech visual aid to help us. There's God, there's not God, and then on the not God side of things, there are human beings, men and women, made in the image of God, and then everything else in creation. And that's a firm line in Christian theology. We are different. We're distinct. We're not uh, just merely animals, as, as a purely evolutionary view of things would say. And so if, if you forget uh, everything else from my point here about the doctrine of creation, just remember those two lines, okay? The line dividing God and everything else, and then on the not God, everything else side, dividing human beings from the rest of creation. Those are key components. Now, because of this, that humans are made in the image of God, different from trees and dogs and ducks and platypus and so on, um, all human life is sacred. We believe that all human beings are made in the image of God. We belong to God and are endowed with dignity. This is why Christians care about unborn babies that are made in the image of God, unique humans. This is why we care about those who are sick and uh, elderly, those with disabilities, those of uh, different ethnicities, people who look different from us. We say everybody is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity, respect. Their life is sacred, and we are to love them as human beings. So we all bear the image of God. Author uh, Greg Gilbert explains the implications of this doctrine of creation in, in this way. He says, the implications of this claim that God created the world, and especially that God created you, are enormous. That the world is not itself ultimate, but that it sprang from the mind, word, and hand of someone else is a revolutionary idea, especially in our day. Contrary to nihilism that dominates so much human thinking, it means that everything in the universe has a purpose, including human beings. We are not the result of random chance and genetic mutations, gene reassortments, 
and chromosomal accidents. We are created. Every one of us is the result of an idea, a plan, and an action of God himself. And that brings both meaning and responsibility to human life. This truth brings meaning, we're created for a purpose, and responsibility to human life. God has work for us to do. And so, friends, we are not as free or as autonomous as we sometimes like to think. We're finite, dependent beings. And so, with God as our creator, he has a right to tell us how to live. The Bible uses elsewhere the image of a potter and clay. And the clay doesn't really have the right to speak back to the potter and tell the potter how to do things. No, as, as the clay, uh, it drastically changes how we view our approach to life, where, where self is not at the center. No, our lives do not belong to ourselves. Instead, we say, my life is a gift, and I'm simply a steward of the time and resources that God has given me. I'm not the owner here. And so my days and my years and my energy and my strength is to be used for God's purposes and what God has called me to do. My life is not my own. Now, again, we're painting in in broad strokes here, but this is the first main movement in the story. The first main component of a Christian worldview is the doctrine of creation, that there is a God, a creator God, that created us and everything else, and we are accountable to him. Now, while everything God created was good, we know that things didn't stay that way. And that brings us to the second movement, the second chapter in the story, you could say, and that's the fall. So through the deception of the serpent in the garden, Adam and Eve, the first humans, sinned and disobeyed God. In Genesis chapter 3. Although God's commands were clear to Adam and Eve, the serpent led them to doubt the goodness of God. And they started to wonder, is God really for us? The serpent poses a simple question, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? Did God really say that? And then he causes them to doubt God's goodness. He only wants to keep you from that because then if you ate from it, you would become like him. So essentially, God's holding out on you. God's commands aren't for your good. And so they, wanting to be like God, wanting to be able to determine right and wrong for themselves, they took the fruit of the tree. And this act uh, led to shame and guilt before God. It led to relational brokenness between human beings, pain in childbirth, the cursing of work, the decay of creation, kind of the ripple effects have been visible ever since. And we do the same thing today where we, at our core, we want to be like God and be able to determine good and evil, right and wrong for ourselves. We don't want to follow the commands and laws of God. Instead, we want to do things our own way. So sin at its core is about 
failing to uphold the law of God in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds, which includes willful wrongdoing, rebellion against God, disobeying God's commands. And because of the fall, human beings are are born in sin, meaning we are born with a, a sinful nature and a disposition away from God. All people are are therefore sinners by nature and by choice. Our hearts bring forth evil thoughts and rebellion against God. There's no part of us or our world that is not affected by sin. This is tragic. The good world that God created has been marred by sin, and that sin brings separation between us and God. We're rebels. We're running away from God. We don't want to honor God as God. We want to honor ourselves as our own authority. And this sin makes us hostile to God. It makes us harm one another, places us under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. It enslaves us. It prevents us from living the full life that God has for us in obedience. It hinders our relationships with other people. We hurt one another's one another. We turn on each other. We turn our focus inward because our main focus becomes ourselves rather than the good of others and the peace of our world. And so friends, sometimes we want to believe that, you know what, there are, there are good people mostly in the world and there are bad people over there in some category. Uh, or we're all mostly good except for a few bad apples that have gone astray. But the doctrine of sin, this second movement in the story of Scripture, the fall, shows us that now we all have this bent away from God and towards self and towards sin. And if you look at the story of human history, it'll show that that's true, just that the widespread uh, violence and ugliness towards one another, it's heartbreaking. And so although things started off really good, they've gone horribly wrong. And actually, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the Old Testament is just this this record of uh, failure and sin. And you see over and over again, humanity, individuals, and collectively fail and sin over and over. And they hurt one another, and they kill each other, and they dishonor God. We keep getting it wrong. And so the Old Testament shows us that that we need someone or something to come and change us. We need someone or something to come and, and rescue us and save the world. And the story then of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is the story of God stepping into human history and, and working to rescue the world. And restore us to right relationship with God. And restore us to our proper place of of stewards of the world. Seeing the glory of God fill the whole universe. So this is kind of a downer note, but we have to understand the fall and the doctrine of sin or else salvation and the work of Jesus really makes no sense. If sin isn't that bad, then salvation isn't really that good. But it's only as we understand the depths of the human condition 
the depths of our own hearts that will realize our need, that will cry out for help, that will look for a Savior. And so, friends, this is where we stop this morning. I just wanted to cover these first two pillars of the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the fall. Two massive uh, orthodox teachings that ground us and that we need to understand to have a Christian worldview and an understanding of the gospel. So next week we'll look at uh, redemption, how the story continues, and then restoration, how the story will conclude. We'll look at those next two chapters uh, next week. But what we're going to do now, and it's a bit of a, a spoiler alert, we'll look ahead a little bit, we are going to take communion together as a church family. Communion is a reminder that Jesus is the answer to the problem. Jesus is the answer. See, we celebrate as Christians that, that we're created by God, uh, created good to know him, to walk with him, to love him, with plenty of good work to do. But then sin entered the world then the fall. And ever since then, we've been running away from God. And we celebrate as Christians that Jesus came to rescue us. That even though we were running away, God moved toward us. And he invites us to be forgiven of our sins, to be restored to a relationship with him, and then to walk with him now and into eternity. And not only is God calling us individually to know him, to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be reconciled to him. But also God is at work in the whole world, redeeming that which is broken and one day will return to restore all things. So we'll, we'll jump into all that in depth next week. But what I want to say here before communion is simply that this is what communion is all about. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood and his body given for us on the cross. See, he took all the consequences of sin and the fall, all the consequences and judgment that we deserved for our sin, the punishment was placed on him. And so, so through his death, our shame and our judgment was placed on him so that whoever believes in him would be forgiven, reconciled to God. He was our substitute so that we could take his place as sons and daughters of God. So I encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would invite you to make that decision, to pray to him even now. Think, Jesus, I recognize my need for you. I recognize the sin in my own heart and in my life, and I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? I give my life to you. And now communion is, is an opportunity for those who have trusted in Jesus to remember and celebrate him this morning. See, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the bread with me now in remembrance of him?
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Well, Jesus, we, uh, we remember you this morning. And though we didn't uh, dive deep into the story of redemption, as we will next week, uh, this week we were reminded of the problem, the problem of sin in our own hearts, our fallen nature, our need for forgiveness and your grace. And we praise you. We thank you that you have saved us through no work of our own, all through your work, your life, death on the cross, burial and resurrection, you have saved us and we belong to you. So thank you that we can stand before you forgiven and washed and renewed, given new hearts, all because of what you have done simply to be received by faith. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, friends. Well, hey, it's, it's been a joy to be with you. we got the after party coming up here in just a minute. And again, we'll see some of you in person next week. Uh, others of you will see you right back here online next week as well. Uh, go in peace.